Hello and welcome to today's Migration 2.0 podcast. My name is Robert Faustmann. I'm the director of the office of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation in Cyprus. I have one co-host and an interesting guest today. The co-host is Richard Sandilian, who is the co-founder and head of the Phoenix Cyprus project. And our guest is Andrew Connolly, whom Richard will introduce in a second. What is this podcast about? Today's podcast is a set of collaboration between Cyprus Office of the Ebert Foundation and the Phoenix and the Project Phoenix, a migrant-led European NGO and social enterprise dedicated to systemic change of the inclusion ecosystem. It is currently running a pilot project in Cyprus. Its program involves an intensive fellowship program, innovative partnerships with other organizations and NGOs, and advocacy based on transdisciplinary systemic research. In this show today, we will explore issues related to migration through multiple lenses. By amplifying migrant voices and shedding light on migration issues, highlight the diversity of migrant experiences and humanize migrants by including and centralizing their voices in the discourse. And now it's time to hand over to my co-host, Richard. Uh, thank you, Hubert. It's great to be back here after what has been a long and, and pleasurable summer break. Uh, in this episode today, we'll be speaking to my dear old friend and uh, eminent journalist and itinerant wanderer, uh, Andrew Connolly. We'll be talking with Andrew about the potential impact of any movement of migrants from Afghanistan uh, and Lebanon uh, into the EU uh, and Cyprus. We'll be talking about Andrew's current work on migration uh, in Europe and beyond, um, his work in the Caucasus, uh, his work across different parts of the world. And of course, Andrew's uh, past work and experience in Cyprus and Greece. Andrew is one of the leading uh, media voices in migration uh, and forged his career on the back of his groundbreaking work covering um, Europe's migration waves uh, over the last decade. And he was on the ground in, in Greece and the Balkans, uh, Turkey, Cyprus and the Caucasus. Uh, and his work has been regularly featured in Al Jazeera, Vice, uh, the new humanitarian foreign policy, uh, DW and a lot of other esteemed publications. Uh, we're very happy to have Andrew with us. He's actually joining us on the ground today, the uh, Lithuania-Belarus border, where he's been covering the, the migration uh, story there that's been emerging, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to, to talk to him about that as well. Welcome, Andrew. Great to have you here, and we look forward to talking. It was a pleasure, Rishabh. Thank you. Great. Um, Andrew, let's quickly begin. I'm going to go ahead and pose the first question because this has been on my mind a lot um, over the last months as we've been watching the situation uh, unravel uh, in Afghanistan. What's next for us uh, in the East Med, for us in Cyprus, for us in Greece uh, and the region? Uh, we've had you know, Afghanistan unravel. Lebanon as well doesn't seem to be doing too you know, great. Um, so what do we expect to see in terms of, of migrants? Are we going to see waves like we did in 2015. What are you hearing? What have you seen so far? What is your experience on the ground? So the events of 2015 uh, was a one-off, in my opinion. I don't think it will happen again in the same way with the same people. Uh, but I do think that a lot of political actors across Europe have a vested interest in sort of cynically using that memory of the uh, of the European sort of refugee crisis as a as a scarecrow to perhaps shore up votes domestically, to give them license for more kind of security theatre, more surveillance, and more cover for sort of quite blunt 
brutal practices uh, on on the border towards asylum seekers. Now, this is not like a prediction. Uh, I don't like to make predictions, but you know, Afghanistan is not Syria. Um, millions of people have been leaving Afghanistan for decades, um, even before the uh, the intervention by the West after 9-11. Of course, you know, the situations in the countries of origin of, of, of other refugees also remain unchanged or, or have vastly deteriorated. But the difference now is that the border management apparatus of Europe is, is completely different. There are lots of ways to enter Europe irregularly, which, which we don't have time to sort of properly analyze here. So, you know, flying in with with fake documents. Uh, there's also a burgeoning route developing from North Africa to the Canary Islands at the moment. But let's talk about the very quickly the two main routes into the EU that existed in 2015, the Western Balkan route, which is what most people associate with the refugee crisis, rubber boats, sailing to the Greek islands, uh, trekking through the Balkans towards Northern Europe. It was sort of for a very brief moment, a haphazard informal kind of Europe humanitarian land corridor that appeared between Greece and and Northern Europe. But, you know, ever since it did happen, the EU is a, as, as an entity and governments of member states and, and other European countries uh, on, the, on the route have spent billions of euros, devoted a lot of political energy in shutting that route down with physical infrastructure, surveillance technology, deportation agreements with third countries, uh, countries of origin as well, diluting national asylum systems and, and um, sort of eroding the very concept of asylum itself. And then number two, you have the Central Mediterranean route, asylum seekers, predominantly African, but, but not only, getting on boats from Libya, sailing towards Italy or Malta, say. Um, and what happened then, as happens now, um, is that the Libyan Coast Guard trained and, and, uh, and financed with, uh, with European Union development money. Um, effectively drag back these boats. They're given the locations of these boats in the Mediterranean by European aerial assets. They're taken back to Libya where all manner of horrors uh, happens to refugees are frequently extorted and tortured. Um, you know, so this all sort of carries on. It's, it's actually really difficult to get in to the EU as a whole if you're Afghan or anyone else for that matter. And it's not just Europe. Turkey has effectively bricked up its border with Syria. It's doing so now with Iran, which was obviously the way that a lot of Afghans came. Um, so I just don't really see how we're going to um, experience another 2015 in, in quite the same way. This doesn't mean um, that, that many people will try and come to Europe. But I do think that the, the sort of iconic imagery of, of like biblical uh, um, columns of, 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 of people um, we're not going to see that quite simply because uh, the European Union will has very effectively through often you know illegal means, say you know the illegal pushbacks of of of, um, of, of migrants on the Greek Turkish border um, has actually blocked them in. But it actually does pose a lot of questions for what uh, will be done with the countries in the region of Afghanistan, say Pakistan, and especially with Iran, where you know these are countries that already have millions of Afghans living in them for a very long time. They're afforded very little rights. Um, uh, and many of them, of course, you know, end up, some of them end up in Europe, you know, the ones who are even born in Iran or Pakistan, because of course they are second-class citizens on the whole there. Um, are, we, are we going to give a lot of international aid money to Pakistan to host these people? Are we going to do that with Iran, which is under international sanctions? Uh, Tajikistan also, Central Asian countries that are largely in the, in the sort of sphere of influence of Russia. 
Um, I would say those are sort of more interesting questions, more pertinent questions, countries with extremely weak shoulders, um, rather than us perhaps, you know, always making this conversation about Europe. Andrew, you spoke about Turkey blocking some of its borders completely. And the special case with Turkey is that it made a kind of devil's deal with the European Union on holding migrants. What do you think will happen next if there's a new massive wave of refugees coming to Turkey? And what will the implications be for Cyprus? The, the, the funny thing about the EU-Turkey deal is that um, a major component of that deal was that Turkey would, as well as, you know, bump up its, uh, sort of beef up its, its, its monitoring of the coastline and, and try and stop boats from, from sailing to Greece and try and crack smuggling networks and stuff, all of which they did do a bit. It was also about accepting, you know, rejected asylum seekers from, from Greece. And it pretty much in the last few years have, has not really done that. I think uh, only one or 2,000 um, rejected asylum seekers have actually been taken back to Turkey. Turkey has, has consistently refused because Turkey claims that, that the European Union has not met their side of the bargain and, and has not dispersed enough of the funds um, and so on. So, so a very important, as far as it's seen from a sort of European Union policy uh, perspective, very important factor has, has not actually been done there. Um, so, you know, you, you, you may arrive in, in Greece from Turkey. Um, Greece might deem Turkey a safe country for you to return to, um, but Turkey won't accept you back. And I think actually a lot of agreements like the EU-Turkey deal um, hinge on this very fact that you must get the support of, of, of a country to take back migrants, either their own migrants or other nationalities. The UK right now is struggling to sign deals with countries all over the world, either to act as sort of offshore processing centers or to, um, or to say, you know, can you please take back these, you know, failed asylum seekers? And it's very tricky to do so. Most governments don't really have much incentives. It doesn't look good for their voters to be seen to be, you know, somehow collaborating with a, with a sort of cruel Western deportation arrangement. And um, it costs a lot of money and also remittances uh, support economies all over the world. It's not really in the interest for governments to take back um, people that might you know, be sending money back to their families. So that's one. But it doesn't mean that, you know, everyone has their price. It's, of course, you know, being done in, in North African countries, uh, you know, countries whereby some people are not very successful in their asylum claims. For example, North Africans tend to have quite low asylum acceptance rates in, in, uh, in Europe. I think part of the problem is actually that work visas, educational opportunities for people in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa, North Africa, Middle East, and so on, are really hard to get. So people who perhaps don't have an actual sort of threat of persecution um, end up in the asylum system in Europe because it's, it's the only way that they see uh, that they'll be able to stay. That's a big problem for Europe too. Regarding Cyprus, this is a very interesting case indeed. In the last few years, you had sort of boats coming from Turkey, mainly full of Syrians, and they would sometimes land in the north. They would sometimes land in the south. They'd sometimes aim for the south, but would be nudged by the Greek Cypriot coast guard to the north. You now have, of course, boats coming from Lebanon and boats coming even direct from Syria occasionally. But the, the sort of sad thing is as well that these boats coming from Lebanon are often containing uh, Lebanese citizens uh, among them. And um, these are people who sold their apartment, every chair, you know, all the furniture inside, uh, everything that they have left. And they're sending to Cyprus, but um, very promptly returned 
Cyprus, uh, Nicosia has signed a return agreement with Lebanon, it appears. Um, but the but it's problematic because a these are collective expulsions. Um, some people who have returned sort of ping ponged back to Lebanon, as well as Lebanese who may not have a, a meritorious asylum claim. There are also Syrians on board those boats. There are also Palestinians. Um, Lebanon obviously hosts, you know, per capita, the, the most sort of Syrian refugees in the world, I think. I think a third of the population now is a, is a Syrian refugee. So that's a question for Cyprus. The other question is, of course, I mean, Lebanon is, um, I would suggest, the sort of Venezuela of the Middle East. You know, people cannot, you know, the, the lights don't turn on. I saw a photograph uh, the other day of the Beirut skyline completely bathed in darkness. People are rioting over fuel and food. Now, Cyprus, through its sea border, basically is a neighbor of Lebanon and Syria. So the EU shares a border with Lebanon and, and Syria through the, through the Cypriot sea border. Is, what's the plan? Does the EU have a plan for you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Lebanese um, who you know, might not fit the classical definition of a refugee, but nevertheless need to start a new life somewhere else in Lebanon? It's the situation of, for example, Colombia. I mean, Colombia recently gave Venezuelans, about a million Venezuelans, 10-year temporary protection so that overnight people that were undocumented living in the shadows now have the right to work. And that's Colombia. Does the EU have a plan for, for the Lebanese, which is on its doorstep and it's happening right now? That'll be a question for Cyprus and, and the EU as a whole, I think. Very interesting. I mean, another hotspot next to Cyprus, which we just talked about, is now northern and eastern Central Europe, Belarusia, Lithuania. Poland, another hotspot where the fortress of Europe shows some cracks. Is it going to be all fences and no man's land from now on onwards across the EU there as well? It certainly looks that way. I mean, it's it's always interesting to see a country experiencing a so-called sort of refugee crisis for the first time, um, like Lithuania is, at least in modern times, obviously, you know, the Baltic states were in the Soviet Union. They have a very sad history of war and occupation and and revolution and political prisoners, and indeed um, having to escape their own country in unorthodox ways. But the reason why uh, it's in the news now is that Lithuania last year had maybe less than 100 asylum seekers that were detected crossing the border from Belarus. This year, just in the last couple of months, they've registered over 4,000. And it appears that basically in response to increased sanctions on the Belarusian regime, by, by the European Union for its manipulation of last year's elections, for the ongoing imprisonment and torture and general tyranny against all forms of opposition in that country. The Belarusian state is, is basically hitting back using state apparatus to facilitate a number of actions. They're doing, uh, they're offering tourist visas on arrival for quite a number of nationalities from, from Africa and the Middle East. Um, a deal seems to have been struck with Iraq in particular so that flights direct from Baghdad to Minsk, the Belarusian capital, started to land with increasing regularity. According to Lithuanian authorities and some open source investigations, these asylum seekers were given a, you know, a night in a hotel in the capital in Minsk. They were then driven to places near the border of Lithuania where no tourists would ever conceivably go. And in some cases, driven to the proper border by Belarusian border guards and told, there you go, there's Germany ahead. And this resulted in a large number of in, in the beginning, mainly Iraqi Kurds, also some Yazidi minorities too, entering Lithuania, causing confusion and, and drama on both sides. And you've seen a flurry of diplomatic activity from Lithuania and EU officials to Iraq in recent weeks. Um, clearly, some financial incentives were, were given 
so that um, you know Iraq would agree to to accept some so-called sort of voluntary repatriations. So um, this is also happening in, in Latvia and, and in Poland too. Generally, the the, the way this story is framed that uh, by by the Lithuanians, by the Latvians, by the Polish, and, and by the EU is that you know Lukashenko, the the dictator of Belarus, is using asylum seekers as, as some sort of weapon. They actually call it a hybrid warfare against the EU. I suppose in a way that that. That is true. But at the same time, I, in Lithuania, I've met South Sudanese, I've met Somalis, I've met Eritreans, I've met people with, you know, real sort of deep issues. And um, they say, well, we're not weapons of anyone. I mean, we just saw that Belarus opened the door and we saw an opportunity we took it. And I don't really understand. Um, and, and of course, now, uh, you know, barbed wire fences are being built on, on all the borders of the Baltic states, you know, and, and Poland, too. This is obviously a very um, restive area. You know, it, it, Lithuania especially shares not only a border with Belarus, but also a border with Russia, the exclave of Kaliningrad. War games, uh, military exercises are being held as we speak between Russia and Belarus, very close by. You know, it, it, it's certainly an area of, of concern, but why are the asylum seekers arriving in the Baltic states any different from the ones who are arriving in Greece or Italy? Or, or Spain for that matter. I don't really see that they are, but I see that actually this situation, it is certainly a provocation by a dictator on Europe's doorstep. There's no doubt about that. But I think it might also be getting exploited because it's a very easy villain. You know, uh, EU officials can point to Belarus and say, look at this terrible dictator, what he's doing. But, it, you know, the fact remains that Europe has a you know, struggling still to design an effective common European asylum policy, a cohesive policy, not something where if you step one foot in, in a European Union country, they are responsible for your asylum claim, even though most people don't want to stay in Lithuania. But now Lithuania is responsible for processing all these asylum claims of people that don't want to stay there. This is obviously ridiculous. But, you know, the issue of showing solidarity with frontline states, um, you know, the issue of very diverging um, asylum recognition rates regarding, for example, Afghans, all these problems are, are still yet to be to be solved. So, yeah, there is definitely increased migratory pressure on the Baltic uh, on the Baltic states. But um, I, I'd say the reality is a bit more complicated than that. When do you see the future of EU migration policy? If you want to elaborate a bit further to what you've already said, account that there will be elections in different states, particularly Germany. Angela Merkel was instrumental in 2015 of enabling a large number of refugees to get into Europe. So I would argue she was also very instrumental in making sure that this would not happen again. Who do you think is going to bet for migrants in Europe in the future? Is there anybody? What's the future of migration to Europe? I, I think it's an interesting point that you just raised about, um, about Angela Merkel who obviously uh, I think will, will go down in history as having, well, it's a controversial point perhaps, but you know, uh, having done uh, the right thing re regarding the refugee crisis. I know obviously many people think she did uh, the wrong thing by allowing a lot of people to come in. Although as I understand, and I'm no expert on German politics, I, I have seen polls uh, taken even now and, and most people seem to uh, approve of the decision to to allow Syrians to come to Germany. But of course, what you also said just afterwards, that, that she very quickly tried to shut that flow of, of people down. And that's true. I, I think um, I think it's no secret that when Viktor Orban, prime minister of Hungary, started to build a border fence uh, with 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 the southern border of Hungary and, and Serbia and, and Hungary and Croatia, um, of course, in public, you know, um, 
the former sort of EU high-ranking officials, Mogherini, Jean-Claude Juncker, they all sort of um, criticized Hungary and said, you know, we don't build walls or fences. We don't believe in that in, in, in Europe. But of course, I think deep down they, bre- they breathe a sigh of relief because I think if I'm not mistaken, the, the, uh, the, Angela Merkel was under serious pressure to actually put up a fence between Germany and Austria because the Bavarians were seeing lots of uh, Syrians coming through. I think Viktor Orban Hungary was was willing to be the, the villain of the piece. He was willing to be the bad guy in Europe. He doesn't care. Uh, um, uh, so 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 that probably saved some political careers. And and actually, you know, we all used to consider Viktor Orban to to be a very sort of provocative and uh, and and very xenophobic actor on the European stage in the way that he's dealing with asylum seekers. But actually, you know, if you look around, many of his tactics have been adopted. I mean, you know, you ask about where where this is going and who will bat for migrants. I mean. At the moment, several European Union states are uh, committing quite uh, heinous acts against asylum seekers on the borders. And this is not me saying this, you know, although I've spoken to many people who've been uh, you know, assaulted and, um, and even tortured um, by European Union border guards in Croatia and Bulgaria and Greece and so on. But it's not just me. It's the New York Times. It's the Spiegel. It's, uh, it's many reputable media outlets covering this for a long time. It's also organizations like Bellingcat, who you know, normally cover uh, war crimes in Syria, who have started to do investigations about how, say, Greece not only is blocking refugees in the middle of the sea, it's also um, taking the ones who managed to land on the islands and then setting them adrift again in the Aegean for the uh, Turkish Coast Guard to pick up. Croatia um, is, you know, credibly, I would say, uh, accused of, uh, of torturing um, asylum seekers on, on its border with Bosnia. But at the same time, you know, do you see any sanction? I mean, Croatia is, uh, is, is in line to join the Schengen zone, for example. Um, there is a border code in the Schengen zone that talks exactly about human rights. As long as states keep getting away with border violence... I'm fairly gloomy. Uh, you know, I mean, there is some interesting developments, though. For example, in the last few days, Greece is saying we expect, you know, millions of Afghans to come. They're going to come through Greece. We're going to put up a fence on our land border with, with Turkey and we want Brussels to pay for it. Brussels is saying, and this is uh, Commissioner Johansson, especially, I think, saying we, we will only pay for it if you have some sort of independent mechanism to monitor human rights violations on your border. I mean, this is also something that Frontex should do. Um, that is a debate that's going on. So that's interesting. I mean, if, if such an independent border, uh, uh, an independent monitoring mechanism could be done, we might not see so many abuses happening. But, um, but until that happens, uh, they, they will continue and they are every day. Let's return at the end of this podcast to the place from where we are recording, Cyprus. You've covered Cyprus and the migration issue from many different angles for a couple of years. Can you tell us a bit about your past work here and maybe expand a bit also on the situation of migration in Greece? So will we be seeing island refugee prisons as a permanent future here and in Greece? I, I found Cyprus a very fascinating place to work, especially with its, with its capital, Nicosia, d- divided in, into... Um, especially how that pertains to um, to my, migration flows, especially obviously considered the, considering the diplomatic issues between the north and the south. So, for example, if you are a um, a refugee from from Syria living in Turkey and you land in the north, you might want to head for the south because if you do, 
you will not, in theory, be returned to the north um, because obviously there's no recognition of the north. So, so you can actually kind of win the game, as as a lot of asylum seekers do call the sort of treacherous journeys they make into Europe. They actually call it the game, and in a way, it is a it is a kind of game. So um, that's something that Cyprus, I think, obviously has known for a long time, which uh, which is I assume why. Um, Syrians are only given a sort of they're given a lower form of protection. It's not for refugee status, which does mean the last time I looked, Syrians were not allowed to, for example, bring over their family. Um, they can't exercise family unification. Now, what does that mean? It means either families are separated, which is very sad and stressed on all sides, but it also means that families inevitably will just have to be smuggled to Cyprus too. This is another example of a policy which. Uh, appears uh, on paper to be somehow tackling smuggling and 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 uh, and so on, but it, in fact, actually um, increases the profits of smugglers because basically people will move to where their families are. That's just a fact. That's something for Cyprus to 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 keep in mind. Um, people are living in in the north of, of Cyprus, of course, uh, for for sometimes a year or two. They may have also been trafficked there. Trafficking does go on, uh, both in the north and the south. The south, of course, receiving some trafficking victims, many of whom have I met. Now, you asked about prison camps. I mean, yes, uh, this is this is actually something that, that is happening on the Greek islands right now. They are building closed or very much not open camps on the Greek islands. Um, the thing is, you can detain people, although probably shouldn't detain people for a very long time because it causes unrest, as we saw in, in the Moria fire last year on the island of Lesbos, where I went a day after it, it, it caught fire. That was a classic example of EU migration policy gone mad. I mean, the hundreds of millions of euros were thrown at that particular camp in itself. And yet all it took was, uh, you know, a couple of fires for it all to go up in flames. Of course, the facilities uh, that people are, that apparently people will live in, in, in the Greek islands, the ones that are being built now, uh, they say are much better than Moria, but they're still prisons really at the end of the day. And and the goal apparently still is to do these rapid uh, assessments of, of, of people's asylum cases on the border of Europe, right? Now, you know, for some people that might be easy to do, but um, I meet a lot of people with extremely complex cases. I don't think you can uh, examine their asylum cases in a matter of days. So, you know, the, the whole question is, what, what do you do with people in the meantime? Do you, do you imprison them? I mean, right now in Lithuania, who, as I say, is experiencing their refugee crisis first time. Yeah, people are basically detained. It's mass detention. Um, and they're doing that because they know that obviously most people will kind of move from Lithuania and beyond. And obviously in Greece, it's, it's similar. A lot of people do stay in Greece because now Greece has lots of uh, diaspora communities uh, that, that have come through in recent years. But also some people are happy with, with Greece. They're not all dreaming to go to Germany. But the question remains is, are we going to build build more prisons for people? Well, it sort of depends on uh, how fast and how sophisticated you can process their asylum claims. And then, of course, if you don't give these people asylum, where do they go back to? Are their countries of origin actually going to accept them, their failed asylum seeker compatriots? That's a very tricky issue, too that costs a lot of money and a lot of political capital uh, for, for Brussels to do. So we'll see. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for yeah, as interesting as depressing uh, the conversation about the migration situation and the impact of the situation in Afghanistan and Lebanon on EU migration policy. This was another episode of a Migration 2.0 podcast, which is jointly uh, conducted by Project Phoenix and the Ebert Foundation in Cyprus. A big thank you to Andrew Connolly. And you can find those podcasts both on 
the websites of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation on the fscypress.org under uh, the FS Cyprus podcast Beyond the Divide series, but also on the website Project Phoenix. Thank you so much from my side, Andrew. Really, really interesting talk. Not a happy one, though. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Hubert and Andrew. Just quickly want to remind our listeners that uh, Project Phoenix and uh, FAS Cyprus are coming up with a white paper very quickly on, on the state of European migration and uh, what things are going to look like or what things should be looking like. Also, to end on a, on a somber note, I'm currently in Prague in the Czech Republic, and I was very sad to see that as a Czech citizen, uh, the foreign minister of the Czech Republic went to Lithuania uh, and in expressing solidarity with the Lithuanians, offered uh, the Lithuanians 500,000 euros to, to build a fence. Uh, and this was after the Danish agreed to sell uh, the Lithuanians 500 kilometers of barbed wire. So uh, this is where we are, ladies and gentlemen, with migrants. We can't uh, treat them as humans anymore. They just need to be barbed uh, and fenced out. Thank you. Mm-hmm.